0: Greetings, and welcome to episode 13 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. In this episode, we are talking about school leadership in our turbulent times. Our guests today, Jessica Haybach and Mike Gunzenhauser, have done quite a bit of thinking and writing about the preparation of school leaders, district superintendents, and the like, as they teach courses and design programs in order to do this preparation. What kinds of things do current and future administrators find useful? What kinds of outlooks or educational philosophies are they institutionally encouraged to adopt? And What role, if any, ought something like the field of philosophy have to play here? Just before I turn it over to Kara for the introductions that open the episode, I want to include publicly something that Jess told us after we had all turned off our mics, that in her very first presentation at a Philosophy of Ed conference at OVPES, in fact, when she was just a master's student, Mike Gunzenhauser was sitting next to her on the panel, which is a little callback to our last episode which featured former office neighbors Cal Alston and Nick Berbulis. To steal Kara's wonderful line from last week, so we begin.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. It is really great to see both of you and really looking forward to this conversation on school leadership and particularly school leadership in times of challenge. I'm going to ask you both to introduce yourselves and if you can tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and if you have any publications that you would like to particularly highlight right now, uh, please do. So Jessica, why don't you start us off?
2: Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Um, I've been a fan of the podcast and think this is really important for PES to branch out beyond just our own our own circles. So I'm an associate professor at Florida International University and the program director for educational leadership programs um, here at FIU. It is a new position. Uh, prior to FIU, I Uh, ran an EDD program in a uh, small liberal arts school just west of Chicago, Aurora University, and really in that job came to be intimately tied to this issue of leadership um, and spent the better part of uh, seven years working with school leaders in a superintendent prep program um, and helping them complete their dissertation study. And so although I'm not a school leader by training, I uh got really roped into the problems and the concerns that they bring and became increasingly empathetic and curious about uh, their their role uh within schools within communities within um education and concerned that what we ask them to do may or may not be ethical. Um and so currently I'm working on a chapter Within uh, the Cambridge Handbook on Ethics and Education, tied to professional development and thinking about the ethics of how uh, the PD world gets uh, sold to them as school leaders. And um, so, yeah.
1: That's great, Jessica. Thank you. And Michael?
3: Um, So, I'm Mike Gunzid. I'm at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. I'm a professor and chair in the Department of educational foundations, organizations, and policy. Um, I've been here 19 years before that. I was at uh, Oklahoma State University for five years. And throughout that time, I've worked with a lot of doctoral students in EDD and PhD programs. And pretty much anybody who's come through for a school leadership degree at both of those institutions. They've come through at least one of my classes. Um, I've had a number of different teaching roles. Right now, what I'm doing, teaching in our EDD program, we call it practitioner inquiry. So you take research methods from that you're used to teaching PhD students, and we adapt it to the practical problems of practice that that our EDD students are prepared to do. All right. So what I'm doing now is teaching this practitioner inquiry course, and I co-teach it with Jill Perry, who is the executive director of the Carnegie Professional Education Doctorate Initiative. So I have a front-row seat at how the Carnegie uh, the the CPED group has been developing EDD programs uh, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. So um, what I'm most interested right now is uh, what we're calling race conscious leadership ethics. And this came out of a project that I uh, was working on uh, starting in 2014 and trying to help school leaders to take what they see as this imperative to care for all students and to bring with it a component of race consciousness. So they aren't treating all students the same. So they are paying attention to racial difference and the experiences that their students have with race and racism and creating more equitable spaces, building off of their notions of, of caring. And so we have a book that we're We're uh, at the proposal stage right now, and my co-authors, Osley Flores, uh, Mike Quigley, and I have four pieces out about this, um, building this idea, um, and I think I'll be talking about that throughout the
0: the podcast.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you.
0: Excellent. So... I would love to hear more about uh, the things that you've found with respect to uh, the kinds of uh, research interests that you have. Both of you are concerned with ethics and school leadership. I'm thinking a lot about I'm uh, one of my collaborators on a variety of projects is Rachel White, who does like who has put together sort of a national longitudinal database of sort of school superintendents having, uh, recognized that she's like the same first names keep coming up. It's always like Mark Jonathan, you know? And so she's like thinking about like the ways that, uh, a certain homogeneity sort of exists, which I imagine plays into your work. I'm obviously not asking you to respond to her work. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm super interested in in hearing a little bit more about this. Um, Mike, can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing and then we'll go to, uh, Jessica. Or just a little bit more in depth about the kinds of things that you found out or the kinds of things you think about?
3: Sure. So we started an interview study back in 2014. And we looked at uh, 22 school leaders in Allegheny County here around Pittsburgh. And we started with our network of uh, principals who had graduated from our various programs here at Pitt. And we wanted to get a combination of urban and suburban districts. We have 43 school districts just within Allegheny County. And, you know, by comparison, like Charlotte-Mecklenburg is probably about the same population as Allegheny County. And that has one school district. So it's a, it's a, it's a unique kind of place here. So we first started looking at how do they use data to create more equitable educational experiences for their students that was our that was our way in and so our first piece was on how they characterize differences in achievement in their school districts did they see it as a difference in achievement or did they see it as a difference in opportunity and we found quite a bit of variation there and then we saw those who thought of gaps as opportunity gaps had more justice-oriented implementations uh, in, their, in their practice. We then analyzed the data about how they talked about race. And we started with Eduardo uh, Bonilla-Silva's work on colorblindness, and we've been using Subini uh, Anima's work on color-evasive and race-evasive practices. And we f- we found that a lot of people just will actively evade issues of race and racism in their schools. And there's a variation. You know, we have a lot of schools that are like nearly 100 um, um, uh, percent black students. We might, and they might all be on free and reduced lunch. And and within our same county, we have schools that are less than five percent children of color. And maybe 10% free and reduced lunch. And then we've got everything in between. We've got um, inner ring old uh, uh, streetcar suburbs that are undergoing demographic change. So we've got it all. And so there's, there's quite a bit of variation. So that, that uh, foray into race led us to look at uh, ethics and caring. So we had some questions around, you know, what's important to you in schools and, you know, what value do students of color bring to your community? And caring just kept coming up again and again. So we we analyzed the data around what did caring mean to these leaders? And we came up with with variations in caring. And we went to Lorraine Code, a a feminist philosopher, she has a, a notion of impersonal caring and what she was doing was talking about feminist social science. She was talking about how social science takes on the perspectives uh, or or learns about the perspectives of women. This was back in the 80s that she was doing this work and she likened it to a um, the kind of care that that social scientists tend to give toward, toward women uh, when they don't work from a feminist perspective is like the bakery truck in her town that has a slogan on it that says, because we care. And so she develops this notion of impersonal caring and we found it to be very helpful to think about these principles, some of whom we knew and we know fairly well, who talk about how they care for everybody equally. They they see children as individuals and they may or may not have a lot of students of color in their school, but they, they might say, oh, we don't have any racial problems in our school. But yet, yet they wouldn't have any particular specialized knowledge on how you work with children of color. And they might not really have any stories to tell us about, about how they connect with families uh, of color or or communities that are living in poverty. So that led us to this notion of race conscious caring because we found in some of the school leaders a pretty attenuated notion of race and the, the value of racial identity and the history of race and racism that. That their families and their children were experiencing and they had different practices that they were able to talk about so we're now doing a new interview study we're going back to some of those same principles eight and nine years later and we're looking at some other principles as well because a lot has happened in that amount of time and you know some of the some of these respondents we know and we've heard people say oh I heard from this person and they're doing this initiative in their school so we want to go back and and see what it is that uh, that people are doing. The ultimate goal is to try to improve uh, leadership preparation, but also to inform the professional development work that my two co-authors do already in schools, and that I may do. But also to see if in our re- in this region in Western PA, can we build capacity? Because we already have some really strong race-conscious leaders who are able to think about their caring in different ways than, than others, and yet we're not sharing that expertise. Um, so we're trying to figure out how we do that. You know, how do you make that work? And maybe the, my latest thing is narrative ethics. Is there a way that we can convey that through story? um and can Pitt do something to connect people to each other because you know this is pittsburgh is a small town basically i mean it's you know a metro of over a billion people but it very much is has a smaller kind of feel to it and the educators are all connected you know they went to one of you know a handful of institutions and we're hoping that there be maybe some ways
0: to connect them. Thanks for that uh, response, Jessica. Do you want to say something about uh, the work that you do?
2: Sure. So I'm going to back up to and probably rely too much on my time in Illinois for the purposes of this conversation. Um, probably because it's just too difficult to make sense of Florida at this moment, um, and in particular Miami in this moment. But. My interest, I think, is rather than what they, what school leaders do um, in their practice, although I do care about that, um, really what is the interiority of an EDD program and the dissertation work and sort of their own professional development, because I have come to see that at the end of the day, that's really the only place where I feel like I have any room to say anything. Um, having never been a school leader, I did always find it difficult to kind of make recommendations about what they should be doing and so our as a program, we sort of pivoted and said well we 're all researchers uh, we tend to all come from a similar theoretical framework we're all we were all very much vested in um, primarily qualitative research, primarily critical um, work um, or pragmatist work and so what can we offer school leaders that might be different um than than what they can get elsewhere and what does the university classroom offer by way of a safe space for them to talk about the problems and what happens in their day job um that they can't say within professional spaces because of the politics because of issues of power and so in working with so many students and their dissertation um projects I have come to see that they need they need more philosophy they need more history they need more sociology they need more um international perspectives on education they they really are unfortunately I think the the products of an education that has delimited or deleted entirely social foundations from their preparation programs. And so they arrive really with not even a strong commitment to public schooling in the way all of us on this call might have. And so so there was this weird space where I didn't quite realize that leadership was missing these commitments. And so I really found, again, dissertation research and working with them in that intimate um, multi-year you know, um, their own research projects. I found that to be really beneficial. But uh, I'll tell one story. Um, So I taught the book uh, Demoralized by Doris Santoro. I'm sure most of us are familiar with it. And I taught it in a qual research class because I thought, okay, this is beautiful practitioner um, and philosophical work, right? It comes um, with this sort of lovely framework. It's it's beautiful methodologies. It, it has, you know, sort of a great, um, you know, analysis and use of data. I thought, okay, this is going to be a showstopper. And I'm going to get my teacher and I'm going to get my students to really care about, you know, the role and the position their teachers are in. And this is going to be great. And the whole thing got flipped on its head. Um, and they were pretty adamant that um, they were demoralized. And, like, I don't want to read about how teachers are demoralized. Do you know how horrible, like, my life is um, right now? And it was pre-COVID, um, and so they were really, you know, they they were like, we need a demoralized part two, and it needs to be about ed leaders because we're demoralized, um, which I totally agree. Um, but I was stunned at kind of how my framework's that I had always applied within teacher education or education at large really applied within leadership circles and getting them to um, I think question their own practices rather than me offering them those solutions kind of became what the dissertation uh, project, you know, the, the usefulness of it, how that has, panned out is most students then looking at issues of culture, like Mike is alluding to, um, race, class, gender, within their own profession, within their own settings. Um, And that has been some of the more powerful work, in particular in Illinois. So Illinois is um, unique. It has 852 school districts. Um, There are districts with a superintendent of one building. There's districts, you know, obviously that are huge, like Chicago Public Schools or U46, but there's really uneven um, issues of of equity across the state. And so from downstate to upstate, suburban, there's extreme wealth, um, extreme rural poverty. And so having to manage all of that meant I had to sort of look at it as a methods question more than a content question. Um, And so I found... Philosophy and research to be about helping them to walk away with some skills, no matter what the problem was, because again, I couldn't make the clear arguments that you know urban ed um, or urban youth, you know all those sort of buzzwords that I think played out in a lot of the literature i I found students really challenging those, saying it's not quite that simple, you know, or superintendents in wealthy suburban districts who had rampant you know rates of suicide and student drug abuse and mental health problems. And so I was struck by leadership really needs um you know kind of less orthodoxy around where's privilege, where's um inequities and we need to be thinking about it, you know, maybe differently than we have historically. And so for me the dissertation project and working with practitioners really Shapes now the kinds of questions I ask, um, and I'm. I think I came into it not very forgiving of school leaders. I was like, "Why don't they just do what we know they should be doing?" Um, and I now I'm like, "Well, wait a second. Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are these policies in place?" Um, and I think research needs to be more cognizant that these people are in very compromised scenarios. Um, They're caught between forces that are very, very complex. And I think sometimes those of us in the academy, we might oversimplify that um, unnecessarily. And then the work they do do with us isn't powerful. And I still want to believe that the dissertation can be powerful for practitioners. I still want to believe that sitting in classes... um, in the evening, when you're exhausted after a full day of work, and your phone is blowing up from your school board members, you know that that space is still a meaningful space, and unlike any other professional development they could be getting. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the backstory to I think where now um, my research and interests lie in very different um, different dimensions. But it is really with them in mind, like humanizing the school leader. Because it's easy to dehumanize them, I think is my big takeaway.
0: Thank you. I love that. I love the the way you describe the journey, your journey, as being one of like, why don't they just do what we know they should do to sort of like, oh, this is significantly more complex than, you know, I initially thought. I feel like that is virtually everyone's experience who decides to get seriously involved with the project of education in general from like first year Uh, PhD students to brand new school board members to, what we know what the research says. Why don't we just do it? Yeah. Fascinating.
2: And and then if I could just follow up, I think then sometimes we double down on what is a doctoral program and what is the university space. And I'll give one quick anecdote, but um, suddenly my students, all their phones were lighting up. Right. And and everyone's like suddenly not paying attention to my brilliant lecture that I had planned um, on Dewey or something. Um, And I finally I paused and I said, what's what's up? What's going on? And they're like, well, like a kid was hit by a car in one of the superintendent's districts in who was in the room. And everyone who was from that same county had like jumped in and they were calling counselors and they were calling support staff and they were. They were like you know, managing this community experience, and so I just said, "You know, let's just take a break, let's pause, like do what you need to do for your community, and then come back and and my follow up question is, how do you all know how to respond in these ways like how why and how are you immediately jumping into action um, and it doesn't matter that you know I had something planned, and it would have been respectful to wait till after class to look at your phone." I I really came to kind of want to be a, a, a participant with them in those spaces and then help them process them. Like what now is it going to be to walk back into a community that has had a tragedy happen? And and how can I, an outsider, possibly, you know, offer um, you know, a conversation or at least a space for them to process those things. So I found that increasingly fascinating that if we maybe tear down our artificial wall between the university um, and the real world or theory and practice, like we need to do that um, deliberately. And that might mean changing the way we think about um, some of our, our performances
1: <laughs> within the university classroom. Thank you so much. Both of you um, really appreciate it. Uh, so deeply the ways in which you're moving between philosophy and the day-to-day reality that the teachers, uh, and the, the not the teachers, that the administrators and the superintendents and the school leaders are all dealing with, as well as the teachers. And I'm going to ask a kind of narrow version of the question about why philosophy, because of where both of you have gone in your comments. When you're talking to these school leaders and you're bringing thinkers like Dewey or Lurian Code and you're saying philosophy, why philosophy for them from your perspective and why philosophy for them from their perspective? Because I know you both to be sensitive educators and so I am sure that you are responding to their feedback and when you're saying, yes, philosophy, that they are probably also giving you some some feedback back to say, yes, this is this is helping me in some way as a scholar, but also in the realities such as the crises that I'm dealing with. Um, so Jess, you're you're nodding. Why don't you go? And then we'll turn over to Mike.
2: Sure. So for me, I think philosophy offers, and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually steal. Um, a phrase from Bettina Love's work um, in her book, We Want to Do More Than Just Survive. She talks about it's a North Star. You know, philosophy reminds us that um, something else is at play rather than just kind of blaming kids or just blaming the system or just blaming all these things. And so it helps kind of provide a rudder in, I think, a profession that is at times like utterly out of control you know, and, and my time my my very brief time here in Florida um, has, you know, even you know, it's that's even more apparent to me, you know, that this is easily a profession that is rudderless. It's easily um, an institution that is beholden to very market driven, neoliberal, you know, capitalistic um, ends. And so I like that philosophy, you know, for me kind of gives me um, a grounding. I think practitioners, too, appreciate it for that. I think sometimes, you know, they can be quick to dismiss it. Like, what? Why are you making us read something from 1932, Jessica? Um, But I think that's incumbent upon us to make those connections. Like, why return... Like, I will always go back to George Count's, you know, dare the schools build a new social order. How do you not, you know, uh, read that and then try to lead a school? Right. So, but I think that's for us within, you know, philosophy of education or, you know, even adjacent fields to do the work of making the connections. Once you do that, um, you know, I'm really encouraged that most school leaders enjoy You know, returning to kind of the the deep thought that's required Um, when you read philosophy, you have to slow down. You have to think differently about language and words. Um, I also think they know in their gut that the professional development world is just selling them a bunch of products that may or may not have anything to do with what's good for schools. And so, I had a school leader. This was during COVID. Um, at the starting at the start of class, I said, "So how's everyone doing?" You know, and he said, "Jessica, I open my emails. I open my email, and the sharks are circling. They just know we have money, and they're coming for it." And so I think then offering them ideas and ways of thinking that aren't tied to them having to buy something, I actually think is an interesting way to frame philosophy, because. Yeah, it's not bright and shiny and there's not a package and there's not a you know um that might be part of our problem too. Maybe sometimes we do need the the packages and we do need things like podcasts um to stay current, but I think the the backside is we also are like kind of smuggling in these um covert ideas that I think they do find value in um and I think if we if we take their problems seriously, they may take some of our kind of, you know, uh, paths um, seriously, getting them to think kind of deeply. Um, you know, I, was, I had a student who studied restorative justice, which in Illinois is now just restorative practices, right? And because we can't use the word justice. And and I just asked a quick question, like, why not justice? And he's like, oh, it's such a loaded word. I don't know. You know, Why? And so my question back was, like, let's follow that train. Why are we abandoning the word justice? What is justice? You know, like the, the best question that we all probably came to this work asking, right? So I think only a philosopher of education, not only, but maybe only, um, would even pause to say, wait, why did we switch it to practices? Why are we getting rid of justice? What have we said about justice? Why would justice be included in the schools? So I think we offer a really, you know, unique and um, specific way of analyzing their problems that, um, yeah, I just hope we do more to reach out to practitioners and engage with them in conversation because I do think they they enjoy it.
1: Thank you so much. It, I just want to echo on our last podcast, Nick Berbulas described being a philosopher of education as as guerrilla warfare. And so and you're talking about smuggling, that there is this kind of under um subversive element of it. Maybe that's why we're not such a popular field. Um Mike, why don't you tell us why, you know, why should school leaders be caring about um philosophy and, and why do they tell you that they care when they do?
3: I was really enjoying Jessica's conversation and analysis of her experience, um, and a lot of it really resonates uh, with me. So uh, when I was at Oklahoma State, I was kind of looking for the, my next thing to do in, as far as my line of inquiry, because I had studied critical ethnography, and I was looking at how people who were practicing it would claim that that it had a moral basis to it but they wouldn't articulate what it was. And so I felt my, my job was to try to like flesh out that space. But I was working with, um, school leaders in the Edd program. And this one leader from Edmond, Oklahoma, she, she was principal of a middle school and her school was rated like number five in this, the whole state of Oklahoma is, you know, excellent middle school and she was talking about one of the schools in her district that was like number 1 or 2 in the state and she said yeah i got to figure out what the practices are that are making that a better school and so you know that kind of took me aback like what what why do you think his school is better than yours and she really had to think beyond the higher scores like that had that had embedded in her educational brain so so solidly that it didn't even occur to her to question that. Um, but what she was able to articulate was there was something that he was doing that she wasn't doing, and she wrote a dissertation on it, and it was basically relation. He was cultivating stronger relations, and and uh, you know at the I was on her committee, and at the at the defense, I was kind of pushing back on the notion that better relation was leading to higher test scores. And it wasn't like she was claiming that, but there was a little bit of an undercurrent there. So that led me into a line of inquiry that I ended up publishing a book on in 2012 called The Active Ethical Professional. And what I was trying to do was say there's value in philosophy of education to help teachers and school leaders resist the pressures of accountability. And I was looking at the the jumping off point conceptually was Herbert Biesta's distinction between accountability and responsibility that he wrote about uh, first in a 2004 article in Educational Theory and his book. He has a book that that um, that fleshes it out a little bit more, but it really made it clear to me that there was something that was missing that that people were not not seeing in their in their practice so i wrote an article for theory into practice and it it's the most cited thing that i've ever written and it and it's a really short piece and it's basically high stakes testing and the default philosophy of education and the idea is that if you do not in your practice think about what the meaning and value of education is and what your community values in terms of outcomes for your students and and purposes i don't think i use the word outcomes in that piece because that you know that's a that carries a connotation um but that if you don't think about that if you don't dialogue about that and you don't know about that And you're going to end up with this default philosophy of education, which where you're doing things like teaching to the test and things like that. Things that we were seeing in some of those initial states that adopted high stakes accountability prior to No Child Left Behind. And, you know, everything bad that happened out of No Child Left Behind, researchers had discovered in North Carolina, Texas, Kentucky that had tried those things before, and we went ahead with, um, high stakes accountability, uh, anyway. So what we tried to do in all of the classwork that we did, uh, that we, that we taught for school leaders in particular was to get them to see what power they had in their particular roles. Um, that's what the book ended up being about basically is how powerful that role is when you are asked to normalize everything. You know, you're asked to normalize your students, you're asked to normalize your teachers and, um, and how the, the, you know, the technology of the examination, uh, leads you to, to, to do that and, and to, um, constrain your practice. And to use philosophy of education to see what's possible, to to name what it is that you're doing, to see what those alternatives are, and how those alternatives may match up better with your own beliefs about the meaning and value of education. Everybody needs a, a philosophy of education, and they need to revisit that You know, and a lot of times students are right. We're writing at the time, you know, every student's philosophy of education started with, I believe that all children can learn. And and um, one of my colleagues, Noreen Garman, said, well, what if you change that to all students do learn? And then and how does that change your notion of, of of what's going on so that it's not that knowledge is being held by the teacher and being given to the student? So over time, what I've seen when I put good texts in front of students, they create from that. They have that reflective insight into their own practice and they can, what I hope and what happens quite a bit is that they can start to name some of their practices and they can take ownership of their practice and, and feel like they have something to say as a professional. I'm very interested in this notion of where professionalism comes from. It seems to have, you know, as long as you dress right and follow the law, you're a professional. Um, When in fact, there's much more, you know, of course, there's much more to it than that. But if they have something, a set of things to believe in and uh, a knowledge and expertise that they can build, build upon, I want to give them more confidence to be able to um, to do that. And I'd like to do more of that. I feel like we have a really quick EDD program and I'm not sure that we take enough time to build their confidence that they, that they know and they can collect ideas that are, that are meaningful.
1: Mike, can I clarify one thing that I was at the very beginning of what you were saying? And I think I heard it throughout your comment. When you, you made a comment that, she was making a connection between relationships and test scores. And you said you were pushing back on that. And what I'm hearing from what you're saying is you weren't pushing back on the dots that she was connecting or her, her faulty logic, although you might have been, but that the thing that was important, I think, um, and maybe this is a philosophical thing was the ends that relationships might be connected to test scores. And certainly that could be seen in the data, but maybe, the more important ends was not the test scores, but perhaps the relationships or something else, and that that's sort of what I heard you maybe pushing at, and also in your comment that that is something that you seem to be doing with leaders is helping them think about well, what what are we what's actually at stake? What are we trying to get at? Is that does that resonate with what you were trying to say?
3: Uh, that's really nice, actually. I <laughs> oh, think good. that's a really nice way of thinking about it because the relation the relations that that leader was developing in his school. I like how you said that. That's an end in and of itself. That's, that's important. Um, and there are other ends, too, like students have opportunities to learn and access to a full curriculum um, as opposed to you know being shuttled into test prep or, or what have you. What I was trying to do was to make less smooth this trajectory from these really substantive ideas about good things to do in education. And why do we always have to say, and it's going to lead to higher achievement, as if that's some sort of ultimate objective arbiter, when we've really chosen those test scores for the convenience of policymakers and Frank. Researchers, that oh, how are we going to know whether one initiative or another works unless we have some sort of standard measurement? Well, is that really in service to children um, if if you know that takes on outsized
0: importance?
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's really fascinating. I just want to underscore something that uh, you said, Mike, and connect it to something that Jess said prior to moving on to the next question. I really love the comment about the default philosophy of education that, that people end up with. It feels like that's part of a long history in and with philosophy itself, a desire to bring philosophy to an end, to move beyond philosophy. Somehow it reminds me of that, uh, whitehead quote about like, if you think you're, I mean, he's speaking to the logical positivist. If you think you're done with metaphysics, all you're doing is uncritical metaphysics. I like that a lot. Um, The other thing that your comment just made me think of, I was at, you know, AERA at the time of this recording was just last week or something. It feels like a second ago and it's exhausting and all that kind of stuff. I was involved in a, in a, in a symposium that was dedicated to trying to find like whatever alternatives to various kinds of accountability policies and uh, the very well renowned sort of discussant to the symposium asked us to think about the fact that or asked us to think about education researchers as stakeholders in the accountability regime. Like, and there's, there's, a, there's an interesting argument that I've been turning over in my head. She's like, you know, people's jobs depend on the production of test scores, like researchers jobs depend on the production of test scores. And I'm like, oh, when, when one says it like that, it's fascinating. That's a whole, whole other topic. Let me transition into uh, an actual question for you. Uh, for you both that is one of the interesting things about this the 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 way that this conversation has been going is that uh there's been a lot of conversation about sort of breaking down walls between the academy and the real world, between theory and practice. And the last two questions that we tend to ask on this podcast, one is, is about like what should what should policymakers like a high level be thinking about? And the, the last question that I'm going to sort of pose to you is something like what should people on the ground like working locally take away from the kinds of things that you've thought of. And it just makes a little less sense given the conversation to ask it in exactly that way. Uh, one way that I might uh, think about it is both of you are concerned with, uh, the role with the university's role in cultivating certain, uh, habits or dispositions of thought with respect to policies that people undergo, uh, or are confronted with in the, in their sort of daily lives. How do you hope that people will sort of carry that forward in their own work? And I mean that in both in terms of like things that they might concretely do in their local uh, situations or behaviors they might exhibit. I hate thinking of it in like that in those terms, but also maybe like uh sort of horizontal educational relationships that they might enter into with others, you know, superintendents or school leaders who have not necessarily been in your uh, classes. Uh, Mike, can I start with you and then go to to Jess? Yeah, so
3: I think that's really important, particularly if you're thinking about your your region uh you know the 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 counties that are near you we have you know with all these school districts that we have, there's a lot of competition between them, and there are a lot of what you'd call high achieving school districts. And people, you know, parents may decide to move to one place or another, and, you know, they may decide they're going to go to this one rather than the other one, even though it's a longer commute. And why, you know, why do they do that? We have some initiatives here, like the Tri-State Area School Study Council, the, the Western Pennsylvania Superintendents Forum. Um, and what we're trying to do with those initiatives, some of them are very long-standing, is to break down that competition and lead to better collaboration and sharing of expertise. I think one of our challenges is nobody really collaborates with Pittsburgh Public. Um, uh, I, I want to say no one. There is, some, there is some collaboration across, but Pittsburgh Public is a little different because it's so much larger. Um, but like the suburban districts collaborate with each other, uh, that's, that's more the case. And I think we need to be thinking in our region. I mean, we are an urban campus. I'm sitting here in the middle of an urban neighborhood. Um, we need to think more regionally rather than, in our, uh, in, rather than leaders that are working with what they consider to be like uh, populations. So I think that's an important thing. Um, The other thing is to, is to keep up, you know, we're, you know, you, if you're out of schools for five years, you know, new sets of conditions are operating. um, And so you have to remain connected and throughout the, throughout the entire education sector. Um, So I think that's something that all universities can do a better job of doing. We're we're hiring now a new generation of school leader faculty um, after a long gap of having any new hires, and so that's something that we need to look at is is how we get our expertise to collaborate with with the schools. A lot of the innovation is happening in schools, and you know it's fun to catch up but you you kind of wish to be more connected um, with good things that are happening. Thank you.
2: Sure. So I will uh, piggyback on your last point, Mike. I think we need to get the conditions of schooling right. And I think we could spend an entire career in the academy writing about K-12 and never step foot in a K-12 setting, never kind of feel aesthetically a K-12 building. And so I think we need to do a better job of, yeah, I, I talk a lot to school leaders, but the next phase of my career, I want to be spent doing more field work because I don't think I can do justice to writing about leadership or writing about school's having not kind of felt schools, because I think what I'm struck by, again, in in talking to school leaders is they sometimes are describing things that don't match up, you know, or are far more kind of emotionally, effectively um, difficult than I think, again, the literature often gives credit to, because again, we make these kind of quick judgments about you know, what they are doing, what they should be doing and, and all that. And so I do want, and I do encourage, um, I think all of us, I think to go back and, you know, sit in those spaces, um, before we start writing about them with our authority, because I think our voices come with a lot of authority. So, so that's definitely on, on my radar. The other thing is, I think returning to, you know, thinking through what is the moral life of a leader, um, how do they survive this job? Um, The the teacher shortage is one thing, but the leadership shortage, the leadership cliff, the, you know, the amount of people that are not going to want to be a principal or a superintendent because it comes with death threats and armed security guards at times, I think is very real. And That was, in my experience in Illinois, it is even more so in Florida. Um, The school leaders I've met in Florida, I'm moved to speechlessness. Um, And those of you that know me know I'm usually not speechless. I mean, it's stunning. Their experience is stunning. And so who's going to want to do that work? And test scores, the metrics, um, more efficient models, that is not going to sustain a career. Um, and so I really think philosophy of ed, um, and the work, you know, social foundations does even writ large, I think could be more interested in, you know, what is the moral life of leaders? How do they sustain, um, within a profession that again is at times, I think really, um, out of step with even having an ethic or having a value, um, system. And so I think we could offer a great service, um, and remembering, you know that that leaders need to be trained as intellectuals. The way we all assume that about teachers, um, and kind of that argument's been made quite well. I, I'm not sure it's been made quite well that leaders should be intellectuals. And I think of, for me, kind of the Dewey, Counts, Kilpatrick, that crowd. Right? They they saw school leaders as statesmen for education. Right? There, um, the superintendent was the kind of the the spokesman for why we should have public schools. They were the great defender of um, the value of public schools in a democracy. And I'm not sure we've done a great job um, of reminding leaders that that is their role, right? They are the sound piece for why public schools matter. If we've only given them kind of the, the metrics and the logics of you know testing and you know, uh, things of that nature. So I think there's a lot of great work to be done. And I think philosophy of ed philosophers of education are well positioned to fill a gap, um, that I think could do some real good to those living in these really, um, complex professional roles.
0: Thanks, Jessica. That's great.
1: So we talked a little bit about the, need to be moving between the space to think deeply and the sound bites. And I gave a talk this week where I was asked by a college president, he said, these are all the obstacles or these are, you're identifying something really real and challenging in public education. What policy changes could happen that would fix things or make them better? Um, and, I say this to say that I was sitting there with him and the chancellor in the room and I was a little bit stumped because I, again, I'm a philosopher of education and I thought, I can't think of, you know, a obstacle. Um, But I ended up going with teachers need, in that case, teachers need spaces to be thinkers and doers. So I say that to buy you some time. Um, What, if you were looking at, a school leader, right now, looking them in the eye, and you had sort of one thing that you thought they might be able to take with them next Monday to school and to work. What is something that they could start with to help them kind of have some more space to think, be ethical leaders? Um, you know, what could they do,
0: Jessica? Would you like to? Would you like to take that first?
2: Sure. I' would have to go first <laughs> um, so I will always return to the to, to I think um, my the first problem I ever encountered or encountered as a master's student in that I, I do think leadership prep has to take seriously foundation courses I I think we eliminated them for maybe reasons that made sense but I think the university needs and faculties need to come together and find a way to infuse foundational level knowledge within leadership prep. Just because somebody took a class when they were an undergrad in the history of ed does not mean it's been made meaningful within um, graduate level instruction or especially doctoral programs. So uh, if we're thinking about policy for ourselves, I think we need to reconsider um, the content. And I would echo what Mike said earlier, we need to reconsider the time we're just addicted to speed. I don't know why these degrees have to be fast. I'm, I'm, I've lost track of what the reason was for why an EdD or a PhD in Ed leadership needed to be fast. So I think within our own house, kind of, we have we have some work to do. I think, in terms of, you know, the 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 spheres outside of the academy, I think we need to take seriously. Um, that leaders are burnt out, that leaders are not going to want to do this work if we don't provide um, spaces and opportunities for them to again have a moral imagination, have an ethical imagination they this work has to be meaningful um, there's no way it can be instrumental and managerial um, of course, you know, yes, the buses have to run, the lunches have to get. Ordered all those things for sure, but somewhere within a within a professional space needs to be, I think, a richer, more meaningful conversation around, yeah, ethics and morals, and um, what are what do they think they're doing? Um, and then I think, although my students, if they were listening to this, would laugh that I'm going to use the word celebration because they love that word, and I always find it discomforting. But I think we do need to celebrate. Um, what they are doing right. I mean, there's a, a story in Miami, a school leader, um, and if those of you watch the news out of Florida, he, a student, liter- and this is you know an uncomfortable story, but a student jumped um, in an attempt to take their life, and a school administrator ran and caught the student, and like fell to the ground and was. Um, everyone survived, but that story at the beginning of my of my uh, semester, you know, I had a colleague come up and say, "How do you possibly, you know, work with students where that's actually part of their job? Is to maybe figuratively and literally um, save kids' lives? How do you possibly attend to that within sort of programs that you know work towards credentials?" and And so that's you know a dramatic example, but I think it's very it's a very real question. How do we attend to this professional reality um, within and bring some humanity back to it and how can the academy do that, and how can we help local school leaders feel like they have a partner in that? You know the university can provide cover we can provide um free spaces of of free speech and um inquiry that K-12 settings cannot always, even though we may feel limited and even though we may feel we're under attack, we still have far more freedom of thought than what can happen in a school board meeting. And I think we need to do more to partner with um, K-12 spaces to offer them that kind of cover um, because we don't have the politics right in our, at our doorstep the way they do.
1: Thank you very much. Mike?
3: Well, that was so incredible, <laughs> Jess. That really was amazing. Um, and I don't disagree with any any piece of it. Um, uh, so maybe I'll try to say it in a little different way. Some of those same things in a little different way. <clears throat> what I'm most interested in, school leaders, is what is it that you believe in? What is it that you think is most important? What is it that you want to kids want kids to get out of the experience of of being at your school and then I want to know what's getting in the way of you doing that in policies or practices but also in your own thinking like what do you think you have to do that maybe you could do differently you know can i can I help you think about it differently but You've got to, you've got to be able to act upon that belief. And one of the things that I think school leaders really need to do is to protect their teachers, to be a buffer between policies that are uh, detrimental to teachers and students to think higher than, than what you're being asked to do and to create alternatives, um, and then for the people who are superintendents and um, like assistant superintendents and directors of curriculum, those are some really powerful people. And when you have really competent people who can cut through all of the all of the crap that that the bureaucracy of the state. Either ask them to ask them to do, or think they have to do in order to be in compliance. Um, if you have really strong people in those positions, um, that's a really good question for them as well. Like, what's keeping you from 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 doing that? I think a lot of times we promote people in schools who can deal with the politics of school boards and. I I don't knock political ability at all. My current Dean is superb at politics, but she also has a very solid moral core and a set of ideas and, and she's a superb listener. So when you have the combination of political ability, political will and strong ideas and a very core sense of who you are as a as a moral person i think you're a lot better at politics so um you know i don't want to promote people just because they're going to keep the school out of the paper that's you know that's that's not good enough
0: well thanks so much for these incredible answers really really thoughtful stuff this has been a fantastic conversation thank you for taking the time thank you thank you
3: it's great to be in conversation with all of you
0: and that is our show a great many thanks again to Mike and Jess for sharing their thoughts with us today and for taking the time out of their schedules to make it happen with respect to the podcast as we remind listeners every episode subscribe where you listen and leave us a rating and a review as well. The show's email address is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com and if there are topics or guests that you would like to hear from or about, we have a form for that linked to the episode description. And self-nominations are welcome. Until next Friday, and for Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We'll see you next time.